If you would, take your Bible and turn to Lamentations chapter 3. If you're trying to strain to see what that says, it says, pure zeal, rightly placed. This is actually a, uh, well, it's a portion of Rembrandt's painting of Jeremiah's lament. Uh, interesting fact about that painting is uh, that if you look at, I think it's the, uh, I think it's this copy. If you look at the, the modern copies written on the side of the book that he's leaning on, it has written on it Bible and these really big obnoxious letters. And as they've x-rayed that painting, they've found that um, somebody added to Rembrandt's work those words just to make it clear that that was the Bible. In the art world, it's an atrocity that somebody would look at a Rembrandt and go, you know, we need to clarify this. And of Jeremiah, I think it's pretty stupid. Anyway, that's anecdotal. That's just... Side issue. Over the past few weeks, um, we've looked at the lament uh, of Jeremiah, the plight of the people, a city, all of its political and religious structures uh, have been destroyed, the people have been carried away into captivity, there's no more joy among the people of God, even children are suffering. It's dark, it's dreary, it's difficult to read and understand at times. We've seen clearly the cause of this suffering is first in a primary sense, uh, near at hand is the actions of the Babylonians. But behind those actions are really the hand of judgment of God because the people of God had left the Word of God. And we saw this so clearly in verse 18 of chapter 1, where Jeremiah writes, The Lord is right, for I have rebelled against His Word. But hear all you people, and see my suffering. The tone and tenor of the book of Lamentations is we will suffer in this lifetime because we have all left the Word of God. This lament is written for our instruction, and it's so interesting. Uh, the, the diversity of the Word of God at this point because lamentation simultaneously confronts us in our sin and offers us comfort in the person of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, as I've looked at this lament and grown alongside of you, there's this reality that has gripped my heart, and that is that we are called to declare the gospel. And friends, we live in a day and age where missiology has come so far. And every church in America seemingly has a missions conference. Um, everybody has an evangelical emphasis, a, a, a push for evangelism. Tell your neighbors about Jesus. But parallel to all of those actions are the reality that the church in the main in America today, has left the Word of God. We'll carry on with our missions conferences. We'll continue with our evangelistic endeavors. But we want to do it in our own way, with our own thinking, for our own glory. You see, if we look at our communities and we wonder why, 
Why is it that in America, the gospel at one time seemed to loom so large and now it is nothing more than fodder for all of the pundits and all of the liberal commentators? My argument would be, some would say that it comes because of liberalism creeping in, and I think that's accurate to a certain degree, but I... I think we have to look no further than the church. And, and I hope that you hear this, not as me throwing stones, but more as shining a light on the problem. And, and let me just be clear so that if this frustrates you, you can understand where I am. When I, and and I, I want to make sure that this is couched right. I don't believe that I'm the solution to the problems that LifePoint Baptist Church faces today or will ever face. But I will tell you that as a 27-year-old young man who walked through those doors for the first time on a November morning over 10 years ago, the first feeling I had in this place was that the Word of God had been compromised in so many ways. Now that doesn't mean that it was, there, that it was gone completely and there are faithful people in this church and I'm not making, don't take that them more than what I just said. The Word of God had been compromised in this place in many ways. And we have to level with that. See, we have to look at the reality that we have given into the world in our own personal lives. We have sacrificed the truth very often. We have in many ways gone about the way of the world. You see, our community is weak spiritually today in proportion to the degree to which we have left the Word of God and followed after the world. I've been thankful on these past several Wednesday nights, Chad and David have both uh, filled the pulpit, and it's been a joy to be able to sit next to my family. Uh, And this last week, uh, as I was listening to David and his pointing to John 17, uh, and particularly verse 3, this is eternal life. that That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And the emphasis there that we have learned together is that this is really the heart of Christianity. The, the genuine Christianity that we find in Scripture that the issue is, can be boiled down to, knowing Christ and making Him known. And that is in a once and done reality. To know Christ means that if you say, I know Jesus but I really don't care about theology, or I know Jesus, but I really don't like the Bible, then it isn't Jesus that you know. Because once you have a first glimpse of who Jesus is, you want to know more. And once you grow to know more, you want to know more than that. And once you know, let's say you just spend all of your life studying the Word of God, I promise you, you will spend all of eternity still wanting to know more than what you have known. Let me repeat that. The issue of Christianity is to know Christ and go on knowing Him better and better and better. And here's the problem. This is the struggle. Some of you, when I say when I walked in 11 years ago and we had compromised the world, the the Word, you probably will in your heart at some level go, well, I don't see that. And that's the pernicious reality of when people start putting emphasis on the wrong things is we subtly don't notice that we're no longer growing in deep knowledge about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always subtle and it always has been. 
That's why Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So let me just put this question plainly to you this morning. We know that we can know the Lord truly without knowing Him fully. We know that we can know of Him without knowing Him completely. So here is the question that confronts each one of us out of these last verses in Lamentations, I believe, chapter, or verses 55 through 66. This is the question we need to ask ourselves. How well do we really know the Lord? How well do we really understand who He is and what it is that He came to accomplish in this life? You see, the major shift I find in our day is this. Instead of church being about helping you to know the living God more through His Word, Sunday morning is about making you feel good about Jesus. And so we start with how you feel about Jesus. And if that is true, then what many pastors, and I see this all the time, will do with the Word of God is they'll come to the passage and they will ask questions of the text, but as soon as that, that particular passage confronts our current viewpoint of, of, of Christ, and it would, it would impact our feelings, well then the text gets contorted so that you will continue to feel good about Jesus. The only problem is you haven't come to know Him better. We put the feeling about Jesus above the knowing of Christ. And the reality is, when that happens we wind up not feeling anything about the real Jesus because we haven't known Him in the first place. The only way that we can ever feel rightly about Christ is to know Him truly. Amen. And to go on knowing Him. You see, when we know Him, then our feelings will fall into place. Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 9 verses 23 through 24 these words thus says the Lord let not the wise man boast in his wisdom let not the mighty man boast in his might let not the rich man boast in his riches but let th- let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things I delight declares the Lord, as we have seen the utter devastation of Jerusalem and the people of God, and it has gripped our hearts, all of that is couched in this verse, that we would know the living God and know that it is He who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness upon the earth. And so, sweet church, my question for you today is, what is your boast? And so with that in mind, let us rise this morning and hear these words. Inspired of God, written of Jeremiah, declared to us today afresh and anew. Starting in verse 55. 
I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. Their lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, their setting and their rising. I am am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord. According to the work of their hands, you will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. These are the words of God to you and I today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence today acknowledging the weight of these words, acknowledging your goodness and your righteousness. Father, acknowledging that we have far too often lightly thought of you. And yet all of your word calls for us to think deeply and meditate on who you are and your holiness and your grandeur and to live in light of all that we learn. Father, would you write these verses on all of our hearts today? In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. You see, this passage helps us along in our desire to know Him. When the religious world would have us to shy away from theology and growing in the Lord, here in the suffering of this life, Jesus shows up in these passages to teach us about who He is. Jesus tells us that in this world we will have trouble, but we should be of good courage because it is He who has overcome this world. So the question is, where does this courage that Christ calls us to in in living life in a fallen world come from? It comes from knowing Him. It comes in knowing what His character is and how He relates to His people. You see, friends, when we come to difficult circumstances in our lives, when we come to things that are lamentable in our own age, if we don't truly know the living God, we won't know how to respond to those circumstances. If all we have is a feeling about Jesus and something comes into our lot that is gutting and difficult the way that it it came against the people of, uh, of God here in Lamentations, then what winds up happening is we don't know whether to make heads or tails of the situation that we're in. But when we begin to understand and know who Jesus is regardless of what comes into our lives, then we learn how to live rightly. We learn how to take courage. All of our courage comes from knowing Him. And so there are four things in these verses that we learn about the living God. And the first one is very simple. It is that God hears our cry. Look at verse 55. I called on Your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close Your ear to my cry for help. The the issue in verse 44, if you'll remember with me, is that the people of God in their sin had seemingly continued in the form of prayer, but their prayers had gone unheard. 
And and ultimately, that again was because of the sins of the nation. We we have a Father who when we rebel against Him and go our own way, refuses to hear our prayer so that we would come in repentant faith and pray rightly before Him. And He allows difficult circumstances into our life so that we know that we have things to repent of yet as we approach Him in prayer. What is joyful in verse 55 and 56 is to know that the people of God, even when they had gone through a season of judgment, had not given up on prayer. They persisted. And here we find that God had heard their plea. Verse 55 is a picture of God's people at their lowest. Out of the depths of the pit, he says, he cries to the Lord. Isaiah 59 verse 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or His ear dull, that it cannot hear. Friends, there is no depth to which we can descend in our lives that, that, that God doesn't hear us. If our dear brother Jonah was here with us this morning, he would tell us that, boy, he would amen from the back row on that one. We can't get so low that God can't hear. He would say, even from the belly of a whale, when you run from God's call, when you live life according to your own nationalistic ideology and your own hatred for other people, when you find yourself in that pit of despair and you cry out to God, however extreme your suffering, however extreme your tears, however extreme your depression and anxiety, your fear or your shame, God hears His people. Friends, don't we struggle at times to trust that God hears us? Don't we struggle and wrestle in our own mind, God, are You hearing my cry? I think what verse 55 tells us is this reality. The the nation had gone away from the Word of God. They had been judged under His providence. They had reaped the bitter fruit of walking away from the Word of God, much the way that the church is today. What we learn from verse 55 is simply this, that God is always far more willing to hear our prayers than we are to pray. Let me say that one more time. God is far more willing to hear our prayer than we ever are willing to pray. God deals with us the moment that we call upon His name. In fact, Isaiah 65, verse 24, hear these words, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Why then do we so often in our own lives neglect prayer? I would contend, and maybe this is just for me this morning, maybe it's time of public confession, that's fine. Is our own arrogance and pride, our own belief in self-sufficiency, we think that we can take care of ourselves. The nation of Israel in this context thought that they could come up with their own political alliances and their own mechanisms to deal with their own problems, and somehow or another they got disconnected from the Word of God and what He was calling them to do and how He was calling them to live and they they wound up in self-sufficiency. And friends, the reality is this little nation 
As you step back from the pages of Scripture and you see they're walking away from the living God and you see the world that is around them, what grips you is the reality that is true of all of us, and that is that we are needy people. The reason that we don't pray is that we don't perceive our own neediness. Friends, I've been asked before, do you have a prayer language? That's an interesting question to a Baptist preacher. And I'm not going to get into the charismatic giftings, and I'm not intending to pick on anybody's view in that this morning, but what I'll tell you is this. I believe the primary language of prayer is the utter need of humans. Our neediness is the language of prayer. Our inadequacies fit us with words to pray. And it's when we come to the point when we realize we are inadequate. We're inadequate to carry out missions. We're inadequate to evangelize. We're inadequate to pastor. We're inadequate to parent. We're inadequate to lead in any form or fashion. We are inadequate to understand the text rightly in our own strength. We suffer from great need. But we have a great God for that need. And in our inadequacy... When we finally come to that point of humility, and when we come to the point of humility, know that it's only God that's brought us there. When we come to that point in our lives, we can trust what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, that He can do more than we could ever ask or think. God sovereignly is working in spite of so much of our prayerlessness. And Jeremiah continues in verse 56, you hear my plea. Don't close your ear to my cry for help. The cry here it literally could be translated a breathing out. Breathing out of our needs. Uh, breathing here expressed in what is cries or groans. Moravian pastor James Montgomery said prayer is the Christian's vital breath, the Christian's native air. It's like breathing. And, and we can't get this far into the text without being reminded of Paul's writing to the church at Rome in chapter 8, verses 26 through 27. You'll remember these words well. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Friends, I do believe that we so often neglect prayer because we, in our own fallen minds, are, consider ourselves sufficient. But we also neglect prayer because the world seems at times so bleak and, and we don't know what to pray. We face difficulty of illness and poverty, and persecution, and all of those kinds of things, and, and, and we don't know how this is all going to work out. Now, when Jeremiah says here, I'm calling out from the pit, I think there's a sense in which he, he didn't understand everything either. It, the world was difficult. And sometimes it's hard to see the goodness of God when things are really difficult. But friends, let me encourage you, we're not called to measure the power of God by our current circumstances. 
When we look at the way that America is today and how far we have walked away from even our secular founding principles and how far we have walked away from the sufficiency of the Word of God in most of our churches today, that circumstance could almost leave you with a hopelessness because the circumstances are so bleak. But our God is no less powerful this morning. He is not at a loss. Someone once said that it is our call to pray hardest when it is hardest to pray. The difficulty of our circumstances doesn't give us a right justification not to pray. We are to pour out our heart before God even when we don't know what to say. And here we are encouraged in verse 57. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. Isn't it our fears that drive us away from prayer so often? But here, the the cries of Christians are pictured not as the cries of orphans in abandonment. Rather, we have a good Heavenly Father who the moment we begin and even before that, before we utter the words, He hears the cry of our heart and He responds according to the counsel of His own will. Praise be to God that He knows us. And that He knows our frame. And that He knows our weakness. And that He knows that we are fearful people. And that He knows our true need. Is it not wonderful that as we come to answer the question of how well we know Him, that's where we began this morning. How well do you know Him? And really what we find in these first three verses this morning is the first thing we are to know is that He knows us. He hears our cries even before we form the words. He knows our need. So the first thing that we understand is that He hears our cries. Secondly, He redeems our life. The psalmist in Psalm 78 writes, We will not hide them from their children, but tell to them the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. Why is it that the psalmist begins this way? It is because the people of God consistently need reminders that in a past time, in past generations, God has been faithful to hear the cries of His people and answer according to His own righteousness and answer according to His own holiness. That's what's happening here in verse 58. Jeremiah is saying, You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. And he is declaring to you and I that that God does hear our prayer. And when He hears our prayer, it's not indignance, but He really moves in our direction to redeem us. Verse 58 really could be translated literally instead of, You have taken up my cause, O Lord. It could be translated, you are the one who pleads the pleadings of my soul. You are the one who takes up my cause even in areas where I don't know what is right. Not only are we called to cry out to Him, but here we are assured that He delights in pleading our cause. You know, our friends in difficult times, when you go through difficulty, what's one of the first things that you do? Isn't it often to call people that you trust? that you know, that that are wise people. 
But friends, life will hand you situations at time that picking up the phone to call that dear friend, you know, in even making that phone call, I love this friend and I will receive some sort of comfort here. But they can't fix this. They cannot ultimately undo what is so broken here. But our God is not like that. God is not left impotent in any way to hear our plea for help and then I don't know what to do or I'm out of resources or my wisdom somehow has been depleted by your what you know when you have a friend that goes through a lot of difficulty compounded there can even become a time where in our the best of our intentions we just get worn out with hearing the groanings and the cries But throughout generations of sinful people crying out to God, He has never, ever wavered in one respect of being capable to redeem His people. John Calvin says, God is such a pleader of our cause that He is also the deliverer, for our safety is in His hand. God not only hears our plea, but He comes to redeem. God doesn't just come with an open ear. He comes with handfuls of redemption. What a joy that is. He rescues us from our trouble. He delivers us from our sin. It's, it's odd to think about the deliverance of the people of God in this context, isn't it? Jeremiah is bold enough to say, God, you heard my cry and you have redeemed me. Think about that in this context, beloved. Their daughters and their sons, their teenage children have been taken away. And Jeremiah has the audacity to say to us that he has come with handfuls of redemption? What in the world is he talking about? Is he nuts? The reality is that the judgment that God was bringing was not designed for the destruction of the people, but for their deliverance. Because the people wanted deliverance of their children when what they really need, when the pleader of the pleadings of their soul, the God of the heavens really understood, no, no, you don't just need your children delivered, you need to be delivered from your own sin. You need to be delivered from a heart that would mock the Word of God and say, well, we can leave it just a little bit. As long as we all agree to leave these verses, that's okay. Oh, do you see how this relates to our own day and age? To each one of us individually? So often we cry out for deliverance and the deliverance that we are crying out for isn't even on God's radar because there is a bigger deliverance that we need. And that is deliverance from our own sinful heart. We know that God hears and God redeems. Now some might say, so are you saying that God doesn't care about His people? It's almost as if in questioning what Jeremiah is talking about in redemption, someone rises up and asks between verses 58 and 59, Jeremiah, again, are are you seeing what I'm seeing? Like, look, dude, are you here with us? Do you see the reality of what is going on here? And just so they're understood, he's understood correctly, 
Jeremiah goes on here to list out the things that he has seen. Wrong done to me in verse 59. All of their vengeance in verse 60. Their plots in the second part of verse 60. Their taunts, 61. Verse 62, their lips and their thoughts. That means their slander and even their whispers. Jeremiah understands. And and, uh, verse 63, the object of becoming the object of all of their taunts, that being that in this particular time when a people were captured, they would taunt the captured enemy by singing songs of derision against them. And what Jeremiah is doing there as he lists out all of the things that have been seen, he's saying, I'm finite. And I've only seen a portion of the suffering of God's people as they have left the Word of God. I haven't seen everything. If you're questioning if I know everything as the prophet of God, you're right. I don't. But what I want you to know more than anything is though I haven't seen everything, God has seen it all. God hears our prayers. He redeems us. And He sees every area of our suffering. The great encouragement here is not found in what is seen necessarily, but what is said about God. Look in verse 59. You have seen the wrong done to me. Verse 60. You have seen vengeance. Verse 61. You have heard their taunts. And then verse 63 is an all-encompassing. Behold God, they're setting and they're rising. Look at them. Look at what they have done. What he's doing is he's picturing the reality that God, you have known the motives of evil men. You have heard their words in verse 61. And you have seen their actions from the heart all the way through to their words and their deeds. God knows all of the sufferings brought against the people of God by the world. None of it escapes Him. None of it is beyond Him. You know everything about them, Jeremiah declares. You see, it may appear at times that God lets justice just kind of go. That He has forgotten the suffering of His people. But this lament teaches us that nothing could be further from the truth. Our God knows, He hears, He sees, but it goes beyond that even. It would be enough if the sovereign God of the universe knew our suffering. It would be enough if He heard the words against the people of God. The people of His own pasture. It would be enough that that He understands the, the actions that are going on. But the Word of God declares that there's something much more about the relationship of the believer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is that He not only knows our suffering, He not only hears the words against us, He not only sees the acts of the world against the people of God, but He feels every ounce, every weight that is brought against the people of God. Isaiah 63, verse 9, In all of their affliction He was afflicted, and the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and in His piety He redeemed them. He lifted them up, and carried them all the days of old. What Isaiah is saying is that God ultimately has seen every ounce of the suffering of the people of God. 
and he has carried them every step of the way. We, we live in a time, beloved, when people are consumed with temporal justice, aren't we? Isn't that kind of the mantra of this day? Justice at every cost. The odd thing is, and if you want to know, why is it that a bunch of 20-year-olds who are halfway through their baccalaureate degrees and don't understand anything about the world are so sure about what justice looks like? It is because we have taught our children to, to, to contemplate only justice on the earth. When the Bible is always concerned about eternal justice that comes not at the hands of men, but in the hands of Almighty God. The reason that we struggle is because we lack an eternal perspective. If He has known the hearts of the wicked, and if He has heard their words, and He has seen their actions against His people, and He has known their suffering, Jeremiah then in verse 59 ultimately knows that His cry will be heard, that His cause will be judged. Because the cause of God's people is God's cause. God will vindicate His people because God is vindicating His name. Look at verse 63. Behold, their setting and their rising. Behold all of who they are. Look at what they have done. Look at how they have cried out against the people of God. And friends, this is always true of the people of God's people. The world has always, always been against people who will stand with the Lord. Now, the world doesn't taunt a compromised church that walks away from the Word of God. There is no reason to slander a group of people who gather together every Sunday morning to look each other in the eye and, say, and sing how great thou art. And when I mean that, I mean to each other, not to God. When, when we gather and we talk, we just motivate one another. Friends, that's what the world does. And there's no reason to slander. The slander will always come. I was talking to a brother recently that's a lot, he's more mature in the faith and further in years, and he's just talking to him about some of what we've experienced here together. And I said, you know, we've, we've reaped a lot of slander, and his response was, you know that's never going to change, right? Well, that's some encouraging news. But it's true. If we stand on the Word of God and we do not compromise, you're going to be slandered. It's what the world does. That, that's what happens in every generation. And ultimately, it is because when we stand in the Word of God, and I'm not talking about just being kind of the the religious, stiff-necked people that refuse to work through our theology, but really people who are so in love and under the meaning of the text, under the Word of God, understanding that these are God's words to you and I. You know, I just thought this week as, as I was looking, this is a rabbit trail. But in our generation, the, the thing that, that so many... Well, God, look, God just wants you to love Him. You don't need to think deeply. 
Well, then why did he write so much? I mean, if we're not meant to think, he could have given us a pamphlet. He's given us 66 books over centuries. To to rightly divide the word of truth is beyond any of our capability. will only come in the empowerment of the Spirit of God. But it will require on our part not work that brings us to redemption, but work that is in light of our redemption. Our God ultimately calls us to live in His words that will bring the anger of all of the world that is lost in brokenness and in sin. So the question is, what do we do? What is it that we do when we come to a place in our lives, in our church life, in our national life, when we realize that we have left the Word of God? Can I tell you what I think is most natural to you and I? To explain it away. To let our inner lawyer say, we have not left the Word of God. If you read the book that people do that all the time, God comes to the nation of Israel and says, you have profaned my name. And you know what they say? Wherein have we done that? So there's a wrong attitude to come to the Word of God saying we've never left the Word of God. The right attitude in our moment of human history is the same right attitude of every other moment of human history, and that is when we realize we've left the Word of God, we must return to the Word of God. And that is why Paul lovingly told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. There it is again. We are called. Eternal life is to know Christ. The Christ that is coming to judge the living and the dead. And so we should make it our aim to herald a gospel that resounds that God is going to rule and reign over His people. It is His call at this hour that if you have not turned from your sin and believed upon Christ, that under the compulsion of the Spirit of God you would do that very thing. And because if you do not, if you continue to live in the systems of the world and you continue to live under the weight of your sin, God will deal with you. You see, the joy of 2 Timothy chapter 4 is that we are called together collectively. This wasn't just an endeavor for Timothy alone. It's for all of the church to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with patience and teaching. Why? That we may know Him. That we might understand who the living God is. And in knowing Him, we've learned here that He hears our cries. He redeems His people. doesn't redeem the whole world. He redeems His people. And He sees everything. And so crying to Him, resting in Him, waiting on His judgment, we must see one more thing from this text. And it's really something that I would contend with you this morning is really the reflection and outworking of what the psalmist wrote about in Psalm 37, verses 5 through 7. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. That verse is written on the conference room of the church office next door. 
as a reminder of all that we do. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries about evil devices. And so the question is, what is Jeremiah doing in these last three verses of chapter 3? You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. What is Jeremiah doing there? But he is calling on God to vindicate his name and redeem his people. He is understanding in verse 64 that sin must be punished, and so he cries out for that reality. Those who set themselves again against the God of the heavens and against his people may seem to prosper for a time, but ultimately they will come to destruction. And here, Jeremiah calls out in no uncertain terms that they would be given over to the dullness of their heart, that they would be cursed by God. And the dullness of heart there is a spiritual dullness. God, give them a spiritual dullness that they continue on and that your judgment, your curse would come upon them. And really, the curse here, I would contend, is to be given over to your own unbelief. And then in verse 66, from under your heavens will come this destruction, this wrath, this anger. Jeremiah is poignantly standing at the end of God's people being chastened. Them reaping what they rightly deserved for having left the Word of God. And then he turns to the world and he says, if God would do this to His people, what more will He do to you if you refuse to repent and believe? God will destroy everyone on the face of the earth that has refused to believe upon the name of His sons. God will deal with every action, with every word, with every motivation, and with every thought. And it will come suddenly and severely. And His condemnation will last forever. Friends, the Bible doesn't give a tepid, maybe you should, have you ever seen the bumper sticker that says, try Jesus out? I'm often not tempted to road rage until I see those kinds of things. Because at the end of, of the Gospel is not this, this light, fluffy, Jesus can be your buddy. The end of the Gospel is turn from your sin to the living God because He knows every one of your thoughts, every one of your motives. He has recorded every one of your words and all of your actions and He will deal with all of it. And friends, the joy this morning that I have, if you are here today and you've never repented and believed, the joy I have is to tell you that Christ has already bore the wrath for all of His people. So if you would repent and believe, if you would turn to Christ and cry out to Him and flee to Him for mercy, He delivers, He redeems completely. He hears the cries of His people. Cry out to Him this morning. He shows up not only with ears to hear, but with full hands of redemption. And He sees everything. When your mind races and says, but God doesn't know how bad I've fallen, that's not true. He knows it all, and His Son is sufficient for all of it. Amen. 
Somebody's going to come to these last three verses and Jeremiah's honest plea for the justice of God. And they're going to say, but doesn't that conflict with the New Testament? I mean, should we really pray for God to repay people according to the work of their hands, to give them dullness of heart, to curse them, to let His wrath and anger destroy them? I mean, Jay, what about Luke chapter 6 when Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. When we stand for the Word of God, aren't we supposed to just be loving all the time? Well, friends, Luke chapter 6 should have weight in all of our lives, yes. I remember the greatest piece of pastoral advice I was ever given by a dear lady next, standing right next to where Paul McClure is sitting this morning. It was almost eight years ago, the first Sunday morning that I was pastor of this place, and this friend looked me in the face and said, don't grow bitter. And I thought, well, why would I be bitter? Why would that be a problem? Eight years in, I can tell you that that is, if you want to pray for your pastor, pray for that. God, help him not to grow bitter. Because I think that ultimately is the aim of Luke 6, is that we don't become self-righteous people in the fight for, to, to truly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, but that we continue on in being loving. You see, when we minister the Word of God, if, if Satan can't get us to quit, he will just make us ineffective by harboring resentment, nursing hurts, and not doing the work that, he had, that the Lord has called us to do while we stew on all of the things that are against us. And here, Jeremiah's plea for God's vengeance to be known, in my opinion then, is in no way uh, conflicting with Luke chapter 6. Both are true. It is true that we are to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, and to pray for those who abuse us. But it is also right that we cry out to God, Oh Lord, repay them. God, give them dullness of heart. God, curse them as you see fit and pursue them in your own righteousness. And your question might be, well, how can that be? Because, and it's, it's this, I don't think that Jeremiah's lament and his pray, prayer here is from a heart of violence or malice or hatred or desire for his own personal revenge. Verses 64 through 66, John Calvin says, are issue forth from a pure zeal rightly formed. The zeal is not for personal vindication. The zeal is not that, that, that I'm angry and so I'm just railing against this people. You see, friends, the, the, the reality in the Christian life is the most hardened person against the Gospel. We do pray and beg God, open their eyes, give them the joy of knowing Jesus, convert them under the authority and power and weight of Your Spirit, God. But we also wrestle in, with this reality. The, excuse me, the end of the gospel is not the conversion of sinners. 
But I think we've heard so much of that for so long. We believe the end of the Gospel is the conversion of sinners. We believe that the reason we support the church is the conversion of sinners. Now don't go home and say, did that boy just say the conversion of sinners is not what the church is about? That's not exactly what I'm saying. We want to see people come to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, know that it is the desire of every Christian in this room, if they have their heart right, that you would repent and believe. That is our unashamed desire. But that is not the whole point of the church. That is not the driving aim of all of our theology. Everything that we believe, all of our worship, is not aimed only at conversion, but at the glory of God. And so here, that is ultimately what Jeremiah is praying for. Because he knows that if God is going to be glorified, His honor and justice must follow. Many have tried to ignore God. Generations have slandered Him and a few crucified Him. But friends, we are called in our day to know Him. And what we know is this, and this is the final thing that we learn, that Jesus is our true victor. He has already conquered sin and the grave. And because we know that He has won in the past, we know that He will win in the future. Friends, part of the glory of the Gospel is not Jesus is trying to save people. The glory of the Gospel is that Jesus, when He breathed His last on that cross, suffered uniquely for His people, and He will not lose one of them. And it is our joy then to be used as instruments and to watch His children come home. Isn't that fantastic? Conversion is part of the glory of God, but it's not the end. And if you understand your Bible in a full-orbed way, you understand that we are moving, we are one Sunday closer to the DSIRA, to the day of judgment, when God will vindicate His name and His people once for all, and all of the scientific research and all of the the political fervor and all of the, the slander against His church throughout all of the centuries will not be winked at. It will be dealt with. And that is what Jeremiah is praying for. Jeremiah is looking forward to a day when all of the redeemed of God will have been gathered together before the throne of God And all of those who abuse God's people will be judged. It's going to be a good day. So between that day and today, what I think implicitly this text in coming to know Jesus more, that's what we prayed for, what these last three verses really impress upon our hearts is that we should have a pure zeal rightly formed. So how then do we gain? How then is a pure zeal rightly formed in the life of a believer? And it's pretty simple. By knowing Christ. By knowing Him. By knowing that we only have limited time in the earth. 
And there is only a finite amount of days between now and the day of judgment. So the question for us this morning is, will we spend it in bitterness that the world is a broken place? Or will we spend it in the heights of joy, knowing that we have been redeemed by Almighty God to know His Son truly and grow in knowing Him fully? The people of God had left the Word of God and here the prophet cries out to the Lord knowing that He will hear, knowing that He redeems, knowing that He sees everything, knowing that He has been and will be victorious. And so friends, the road to pure zeal rightly formed comes only under the providence of God. It is only ultimately something that God does. He has to purify and He has to place the zeal. And, and, and if you want to see what that looks like, it never looks like compromising the Word of God. It never looks like being the kind of church that sits around and gripes about our current circumstances and looks for a solution in the, the political strata. A pure zeal rightly formed will always be enthralled by one thing. And that is, in spite, Dion, of the fact that you and I are wretched sinners deserving of hell, God has chosen to spoke, speak to us through His Word. Amen. He has chosen, Cam, not to ignore you and I, but He's heard our prayer. He has redeemed us, Sarah. He knows, Janet, everything that we have gone through and David, he's victorious. He has accomplished everything necessary for the salvation of his people. And so we can rejoice in that, come what may. What does a life look like when it is pure, full rather, of pure zeal, rightly formed? Well, I would contend with you that we find the perfect model of knowing Christ truly and of having a pure zeal rightly formed when we come alongside of an aged apostle who has been shipwrecked and gone through all kinds of difficult providences who will eventually be martyred for the faith, for the truth, once for all delivered to the saints when he speaks these words to you and I from Philippians chapter 3. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and can count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Beloved, those verses are a pure zeal rightly formed. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning. And believing hearts will all acknowledge before your throne today that we lack a pure zeal rightly formed. So often we lack zeal. We're just compromised and, and, and comfortable with the status quo. God, would you give us a zeal for your word? Would you crush us where, you've walked away, where we've walked away from your word that, that we might cherish afresh and anew your word? 
Father, we know that we lack purity so often. When, when we are hurt, when we're slandered, when we're maligned, uh, we, we sin against the people who malign us. But Father, knowing that you see everything, that you hear every word, every thought, every motivation, that you see every action, we, you know everything. We can rest in you. And we can be purified by your word. So Father, would you do that? Would you give us a pure zeal rightly formed? And then if there's one here today that has never called upon your name, would they see the depth of their sin? The reality that they rightly deserve your judgment. And Father, would you give them a new heart? Would you remove from them the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh that they would cry out to you, that you would hear, and you would come redeeming them, having seen everything as their great victor. In